We begin this morning a new three-part series on common questions that people have about the Christian faith. The first of those common questions that we'll be looking at this morning is, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? And to answer that question, I'm going to draw our attention to one of the source texts for what Jesus said, John's Gospel in the Bible, and in particular, John chapter 9. And we can have the text up on the screen now. There we go. John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is uh, a part of the particular aspect of the story of John where Jesus was in uh, Jerusalem and he was at a feast, a feast known as the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Tents. And that feast was a celebration in the Jewish religion of God protecting his people and providing for his people in the desert before they enter the promised land. And they remembered, in particular, how God had provided for them through water to quench their thirst in the desert and also uh, with light to guide them in the darkness. And Jesus, at the Feast of Booths, has already said that he is the water they need. And he's talked about that. And then he said that uh, he is the light of the world, that that light that they remember at the Feast of Booths, that God provided to guide them in, in the darkness, that that light was really pointing to him as the light of the world. And now we come to this part of that aspect of the story where Jesus heals a man born blind as not only an act of compassion, but as an illustration of his claim to be the light of the world, that we would see that light. And so he heals uh, the uh, man born blind. And so I'm going to read to us from John chapter 9 and just the first three verses as we tackle this question of why does God allow suffering? As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, that is Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed 
in him. So obviously, this is a particularly challenging case when it comes to the issue of suffering. He'd been born blind. Uh, Congenital suffering is particularly challenging. You're born with it. What did you do to deserve it? The question of why would God allow that kind of suffering is especially difficult to answer. But not only that, oftentimes, and this is what uh, the disciples' um, question towards Jesus is evidencing, religious circles in particular tend to want to allocate blame because religious people are inevitably moralistic. They believe in good and the rights and good not being bad and right not being wrong. And and because religious people want to defend the honor of God, When someone is um, suffering, as this man born blind was, it's quite common within religious circles for people to want to lay blame on the individual or the parents. Can't blame God. Must be someone's fault. If you do good, good will happen to you. If you do bad, Bad will happen to you. He's experiencing bad. Therefore, someone must have sinned. You may have experienced that kind of allocation of blame yourself with your own suffering. Maybe someone hasn't overtly come up to you and said, the reason why you're suffering is because you did something wrong, but you... You pick up the feeling when they talk to you. They wonder what it is that you did, that you're suffering as you are. So congenital suffering, a man born blind, within a religious context, is particularly challenging. But Jesus' answer is different from what we might expect. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, for the rest of this sermon... I'm going to be making the case that Jesus' answer is a compelling answer, a satisfying answer. And to do that, we will need, first of all, to identify clearly what the problem of suffering actually is. And then we will need to see why it is that many of the popular answers, one of which we see here in the text, really don't work.
and then why it is that Jesus' answer does work. So first of all, let us identify clearly what the problem is. And to do that, I will illustrate the problem and then summarize it for us. And I will illustrate it in two ways. First, at the micro level, the kind of thing that you and I might experience in our own personal lives. And then at the macro level, to give a sense of the scale of the problem. So first, illustration at the micro level. And I'll change some of the details so that I'm not telling someone else's story, but the story I'm about to tell you is a real story. A young couple that I got to know in their early 20s. Brilliant. Highly intelligent. Energetic. Gifted. Charming. The world at their feet. One young child. As I got to know them, it became gradually apparent that there seemed to be something wrong with the husband. He was uh, doing uh, various jobs to help pay for his wife to go to school. They had one of those arrangements of which you may be familiar, whereby he was going to work for a while so she could get her education. And then when that was done, she would work so that he could get his education, that kind of thing. And he was uh, working. Uh, One of his jobs to get some money to pay for the schooling was as a uh, parking garage attendant. And I went to visit him. I remember going to visit him at that garage trying to figure out what was going on in his life, what was up. And as uh, we talked, he started to disclose what was going on in his mind. Late at night, he told me, he saw things, strange things, frightening things. We, uh, of course, sent him to professional help for diagnosis and it became apparent that he was suffering from schizophrenia and he was hallucinating it was really bad and and eventually he was sent to a mental hospital and committed young couple beautiful brilliant a young child. It wasn't a situation without its humor. We all tried to keep our spirits up. I remember uh, when I first tried to visit him in the mental hospital. Normally, if you go to visit someone in hospital as a pastor, you say, I'm a pastor, and they let you right in. Uh, but this was a very secure unit. He, they, they were frightened that he would be a, a danger to other people. And they refused to let me in. And so I, I went back and thought about it for a day or two and uh, decided somewhat whimsically I would try a different approach. 
So I went to the mental hospital that morning, and I looked at the guard on the door and said, uh, my name is Dr. Moody, and I've come to visit so-and-so. It's amazing how easy it was to get in. <laughs> I went there for, you know, day after day, week after week, just to see him. Dr. Moody, to see so-and-so. Yes, sir, uh, go ahead. Eventually, the garage attendant asked me what my doctorate was in. I said, historical theology. <laughs> he didn't allow me in that morning. As far as I know, he never got healed. What is their future or that child's future? What about the macro level? When I teach on suffering, I use as a source text a collection of first-hand eyewitness accounts of the Holocaust in Eastern Europe. This one comes from Lithuania. We have first-hand eyewitness accounts because during the Holocaust, those who were not killed were used to burn the bodies of those who were. Some of them survived. And I'm going to read to you an account, just briefly, of one such description. It's a huge book of these eyewitness accounts. It's estimated that in Lithuania, 100,000 or so Jews were murdered, just in this particular region of Lithuania. And here's the eyewitness account of this one man. He said this. I once came across my family when we were burning the bodies. My wife mother, three sisters, and two nephews. I recognized my wife from a locket I gave her on our, on our wedding day. As my wife's body was burning in the bonfire, I slipped the locket from her neck The two photographs inside it had already been destroyed by the flames. I could go on. Sadly, this is just the, a slither of the suffering, a, the, the tip of the iceberg of the kind of suffering that is the human condition. So how can we summarize the problem of suffering? Well, with the title of the sermon, I think, why does God allow suffering? God as defined by the way that Christians define God. That is, God as almighty and all good or all loving, perfectly moral, 
utterly in control of everything, both those things, almighty and all good. Why does God allow suffering, which is, of course, not good? So how do we answer it? Well, second, let's examine how many of the popular answers don't work. And I'll just put them into three categories. There are all sorts of different expressions of these. But uh, the first kind of popular answer is essentially to say, in one way or another, that God isn't really almighty. In other words, the reason why we suffer is because we've done something wrong. Of course, it's basically what the disciples are wrestling with. It's our fault. God's good, but we mustn't blame him. We've done something wrong. Now, there's no doubt that in many cases the reason why people suffer is because they do stupid things, risky things, sometimes wrong things. There's no doubt that there is a connection. If you drive around the highways at Chicago at 140 miles per hour and you get into a car wreck and you break your back and a paraplegic, it, it doesn't make a lot of logical sense to blame God. Should have driven more carefully. But, as this story illustrates... There are many kinds of sufferings that that equation is not connected. What about the man born blind? What about congenital suffering? What about the suffering that, that we just had illustrated in the um, Holocaust? So as attractive an answer as that might be, as easy as it might be to understand, it doesn't really answer the problem. Another common popular answer that people give, and there are all sorts of different expressions of all these, but basically the other, another common popular answer people give is essentially, instead of saying, well, God isn't really almighty in every possible way, but instead to say, God isn't really all good or all loving. Now, you won't find that answer listed in the sort of apologetic books on the problem of suffering and you won't find people who give talks on the problem of suffering use this as an answer but it is a very common answer that Christians struggle with in my experience you almost never come across a Christian who's going through significant suffering who wonders whether God exists but they do wonder what kind of God he is and how good he really is Of course, this is the very issue that C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford apologist, himself struggled with. He wrote two books on suffering, one called The Problem of Pain, which has various answers in it, which some of us would agree with some parts and other parts not. But then his other book was much more personal. It was called A Grief Observed, and that was his observation of going through suffering after his wife had died of cancer. And for C.S. Lewis, he very frankly said, the issue for him is not whether God existed, but what kind of God it was that existed. 
Again, that's an understandable conclusion. Of course, it solves the problem. If God really isn't all good, then it's not surprising they're suffering. But the problem with that answer is the data is mixed. For every person diagnosed with cancer, there's a beautiful sunset and sunrise. And that's just one little part of the beauty of the universe. And then, of course, for Christians, there's the cross that shows us that God loves us. The third of these categories of popular answers that don't really work that I'll give you this morning is one that is not, of course, given by Christians, but is very, very common. And that answer is, well, the reason why they're suffering is there is no God that, that we live in a survival of the fittest kind of world, that it's a dog-eat-dog kind of world. And we shouldn't be surprised by their being suffering. That's what nature is like, that nature is one big restaurant with one thing eating another. Of course they're suffering. That's how nature works. Yeah, but And I don't have time to get into all of why I believe God exists, of course, this morning. But as much as that does answer the problem, why does God allow suffering? Well, there is no God. That's why they're suffering. It answers the question, but not satisfactorily. Because the universe around us has a multiplicity of evidence of an astonishing degree that it is designed so much so that contemporary physicists have invented with no evidence whatsoever in an attempt to explain the fact that the universe looks designed what they call a multi-universe that is a nearly infinite number of universes to explain the infinitesimally small chance that the world as we experience it would happen because it looks so designed Well, there's an easier answer. It looks designed because it is. And I don't mean to dismiss all the debate there, but I, I don't find that a satisfying answer. Well, then, um, what is the answer? I, so we come now to Jesus' answer. Again, what does he say? He says... Not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There are three parts to that answer. First, that, which is in order that or so that. In other words, it's a purpose statement. So Jesus doesn't answer the problem of suffering here by going back to the origin. Where did it come from in the beginning? But going to the end, there's a purpose. It's going to achieve something. So that, in order that. And 
and even in um, secular circles, it's long been realized that psychologically, uh, Elie Wiesel, the famous um, Nobel prize-winning author who wrote the famous book Night about his experience in the Holocaust, observed that those who survived were those who believed their life had meaning. Jesus is saying there's a meaning, there's a purpose, but, but not that we invent our own meaning. We pretend there's meaning when there really isn't, but that there is meaning. So that's the first part of his answer, the purpose, the meaning, the end, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, what are these works of God? Well, Jesus answers that in the next verse right after this, which I will now read out. He goes on to say, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And again, I don't have time to show this throughout John's gospel, but this phrase, the works of God, is used in John's gospel as the activity that shows who Jesus is that we might believe in him, that he's the light of the world that we might believe in him. So as he says, Jesus says in John chapter 6, what are the works that God requires? To believe in the one he sent. So these works that Jesus does throughout John's gospel are designed to show us who he is that we might believe. And this work, this suffering, is designed to show us who Jesus is, that we might believe in him. The third part of the answer, so that the works of God, purpose, works of God to show us who Jesus is, might be displayed in him. And I think there's a principle here that Jesus is applying to this man born blind, might be displayed in us, those of us who follow Jesus. Uh, To explain this, I will simply quote from Abigail Adams, the wife of John Adams, who wrote to her husband once in a letter quoting from a poet called Edward Young, saying this, affliction or suffering is a good man's shining time. To explain that, let me illustrate it. When I was 20 years old or soon, or so, um, just last year, I got to know a very eminent Christian leader. I was running a Christian organization, and he was one of the people who was meant to give us young people advice. And I would go to his house to get advice. His name was Professor Sir Norman Anderson. He was at the time the world's leading Islamic law scholar. And he was a, a Christian. And I would go uh, to ask him advice about various things. 
One time I noticed that his wife, he was by this time quite aged, and he and his wife had a small apartment in Cambridge. I noticed that his wife could not remember my name. He seemed a bit embarrassed by this, and as she left the room, he leant across to me and said, "Uh, Josh, uh, I should just explain, my wife has Alzheimer's. There's this brilliant man, at the time famous, who's living in a small flat, taking care of his wife with Alzheimer's. It's quite a lesson for a young man to watch. As I got to know him, he told me his story. His son very gifted like his father, had been on the fast track to British politics and was touted as the most likely next prime minister. And then has suddenly died of what I think was a brain aneurysm. His daughter had been a missionary And then on the mission field, she had been raped and abused. She came back on furlough to recover. And then at the top of the stairs, she stumbled, fell down, hit her head on a step knocked herself unconscious, and with no one else around, she drowned in her own spittle. He had no children left. We were running a... um, evangelistic campaign at the time to reach out to people with the good news of Jesus. And we had a special night that was going to be on suffering. And I decided that this event that was for young people, you know, we had all the hip, trendy stuff going on, nonetheless should have, as the testimony for that night, this old man, Professor Sir Norman Anderson, He shuffled onto the platform and told his story to pin drop silence. That was a huge conference some months later with, I think, thousands and thousands of college students. And he went and gave his testimony there too to pin drop silence. None of that makes what happened to him or his children or his wife good. But it does mean it had meaning. It was a shining time. So then, Christian, 
Do not run away from your weaknesses. Do not hide your sufferings. It is in that very place that God is most likely to use you most. And non-Christian, we all have to have an answer to suffering. Every philosophy, every ideology, every religion, even the Buddha, the first of his noble truths is life is dukkha, which is usually translated life is suffering. It means there's something wrong with life. What's your answer? I commend to you, Christ. We worship the God with the scars on his hands. Come join us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that in this great mystery of suffering, there is a purpose. Lord, we know that in 30 minutes or so, it's not possible to give witness to every kind of suffering, nor to answer every aspect of this question of suffering. But Lord, would you help us to shine in our suffering? And to worship you, Lord Jesus, who suffered for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.